At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Eves. Welcome back, my fellow Habitat Managers, to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees. Thank you again for tuning in. Episode number 70 here, guys, and you are not going to want to miss it. We have Casey Schutman from the Management Advantage television and web show. I've been following Casey and the Management Advantage for a long time now. I really do enjoy their videos and the content they put out. We've had some other guys on here, Chase Burns and Eric Long, both are contributors to the Management Advantage, so it was great to get Casey on to talk uh, all things winter habitat. We dive into trapping. We talk a lot about trapping and whether it's an effective tool in managing your habitat and your wildlife populations. We talk about some trips that Casey goes on for trapping, also some tips and tricks that he uses um, once you start trapping, you need to keep trapping, etc. Um, we also discuss what trapping can do when done at the right time of the year. Then we shift gears and get into the hunting and habitat strategy side of things. We talk about different things like wind speed and stand access. We talk about where to plant your food plots, you know, in the middle of your property versus on the fence line. Uh, we talk about killing some invasives like bush honeysuckle. It's just a really good episode. We also tell some really cool deer stories at the end, and it's just like, it's almost October, it feels like, again, when you start telling stories like that. So, tune in, guys. Another great episode here with Casey Schutman from the Management Advantage, and uh, we'll get right to that. First, I want to tell all the listeners, uh, this Friday, January 24th, I will be at the Hunt and Time Expo in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It uh, starts at about 1 p.m. You'll find me in the Michigan Whitetail Pursuit booth right off the bat. And then uh, I'll be popping around to some of our other sponsors who are all going to be there as well. Uh, don't forget to pick up the uh, Season 10 DVD at uh, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. But once you hit that, check out the 5-2 Outdoors booth with Dale Wallace. He's going to have his Lazy Man stands there. He's going to have Packer Max Colt Packer there. And uh, he's just a good old boy. You guys should all meet him. Really nice guy. Uh, so be sure to check him out as 5-2 Outdoors. Next, wander on over to the Packer Max booth 
Lincoln will be there with his products. And, guys, check out these Packers. I've been using one for two full food pot seasons now, and it's indestructible. Uh, check them out at PackerMax.com. Also, if you mention you've listened to the Habitat podcast, you will get $50 off any Packer. That's free money, guys. Check that out. Check out Lincoln at PackerMax.com and at the show. If you still have time after that, be sure to get over to the Killer Food Plots booth. Nick will be there with all his newly branded product. If you look closely, you will see the Habitat Podcast logo on one of his seed bags. So pretty cool, pretty excited about that. And he's just, you know, a wealth of knowledge, guys. If you have questions, you know, if you're getting into Food Plots for the first time this year, go ask Nick a question. You know, he's just a regular guy like the rest of us, and uh, except he'll tell you and tell you and tell you, all kinds of information, so be ready to write stuff down because he is literally a food pod dictionary. Be sure to check out Killer Food Pots. Um, I know they're offering free shipping on their website. The spring food pot season will be here before we know it, and that is at KillerFoodPots.com. Let's not forget about a couple of our other Michigan companies that support the podcast, the HuntWise hunting app. Check them out in your app store. I'm going to be meeting with them this weekend, planning some cool things for 2020. It's a great app, guys. Um, I urge you guys to check it out. It has all the boundary information, property ownership, things you could ever need. Uh, And then lastly, let's check out um, Nick Nation at the Habitat Hook on Facebook or nationscreations.net. If you missed it, last week's episode, episode number 69 was with Nick Nation and Hinge Cutting and the Habitat Hook. That was another great one, guys. I wanted to say thank you for everyone who's reached out either on Facebook or on our Apple Podcast Reviews or Spotify Reviews. We really love you guys. Thanks for leaving us the great reviews. Please go ahead and continue to do that on Spotify or the iTunes uh, Apple Podcast app, and I will find you and send you a free decal. And then uh, lastly, guys, we have some brand-new sweatshirts and long-sleeve shirts along with hats up on HabitatPodcast.com. So thank you for all who have ordered so far. Uh, there's some pretty sweet gear and i hope you guys like it appreciate the feedback let us know what you think and uh, you know i'll be looking good this this spring and winter while we're doing our habitat work so thanks for supporting the podcast now let's get to it with casey shootman and the management advantage all right everybody welcome back to another episode of the habitat podcast we have my co-host brian hallboy on the line and a special guest tonight casey shootman what's going on casey not much. Good to be here. Yeah, man. Glad to have you. Glad you could come on. How's your uh, holiday season in 2020 starting off so far? Holiday season busy, of course. I had the bright idea to leave the day after Christmas, which I'm sure my wife was thrilled about that. But we, uh, me and a buddy took his son to western Nebraska on a trapping trip. So it was kind of neat to take a 14-year-old kid out of state trapping for the first time and um, got a good show knocked out. And I think we were, we were there for, I think we had six check days and we killed uh, 46 coyotes. Holy cow. Uh, could have been a lot better. Um, the first three days we were there, the wind was blowing 40 to 50 mile an hour and it was snowing so hard you couldn't see 50 yards. So that kind of put a damper on the first three days, but after it picked up quite a bit. I wish we could have stayed another week. We would have broke 100 for sure. Wow. But, uh, but, but, but yeah, other than that, we just uh, celebrated my daughter's one-year-old, one-year birthday yesterday. So 
everything's going good. Time flies. Good, man. Good to hear. Yeah, I saw some of those Facebook pictures. It looked uh, bitterly cold. I mean, you guys were, like, yeah. covered up in frost and snow and frozen to your beards, mustaches, all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, that was – I do a lot of – I mean, most of my trapping is, you know, ADC work in the south, like Alabama and Texas and down through there. Really? And, you know, most of the time you're 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 trapping in January or February in a T-shirt in south Texas. And um, it's just a lot different than, than what we're used to up here. But um, that was definitely – uh, the probably the harshest conditions I've ever trapped in. Um, luckily, we were riding around most of it in a truck, and we didn't have to be out in it too long, you know, in between taking sets and whatnot. But it did make it tough just because, you know, when, it's, when the wind's blowing that hard and you got, you know, a foot of snow drifting over the top of your sets and you try to uncover them, and within 30 seconds they're covered back up again. It, it makes for tough tough conditions and you really can't do anything about it. You just gotta you gotta let the traps lay there and when the weather finally breaks you gotta make your move on them, so Okay. And yeah, it was it was tough, that's for sure. <laughs> well not only that, you're you're uh getting away from home right after the holidays with uh a one year old is a baby girl, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, good for you. A- any uh yeah. any tricks to us uh Fathers with children on uh, getting away from, you know, the holiday season. That's, that's probably challenging <laughs> itself, man. I well, know I deal with it. The good thing about my wife is she's used to it. I mean, ever since we've dated, um, you know, it's not it's not necessarily me just going and having fun. I'm actually going, you know, for work. Yeah. Because we were we were going we were going to film a show, and pretty much everything that I do it all ties into that. So I get I get a I get a lot of free passes in quotes work um but we do have a lot of fun while we're doing it well that is for sure no that's awesome man how was the birthday party last night it was good it was good low-key you know everybody kind of chilled out baby was ready for bed by nine so we was uh we was all in bed in pretty good time last night but yeah she's uh she's growing up way too fast i can't believe it's been a year already i mean Mm. wow (laughs) Yeah. yeah, it seems like yesterday we just found out that we were having her, and now we're here. Yeah, we are. Hang on to those days, man. Oh man, she's she's walking and kind of sort of talking, and I mean, she started walking at nine months old. So, oh wow, it, uh, yeah, she's walking at nine months, um, and she's saying no, oh, probably five or six words now. So, yeah, who knows where we go from here. <laughs> So is that uh, your only child so far, or do you have more? Yep, that's that's our only one. Okay, cool. Only, only one. Very nice. So, I know uh, Brian's yeah. got two daughters, and I have uh, two daughters and a young son, just a little bit older than your daughter. So we feel you, cool. buddy. It's uh, There's nothing like it, and um, crazy how it changes your life, that's for sure. It's it's really, wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah, I, that's a fact. And in fact, you always, you always hear everybody talk about how it'll change your life, and you view a lot of things differently, and you're like, yeah, whatever. And then it comes, and then you're like, huh. <laughs> no, I see what they were talking about. Yeah, I, I know. Uh, it was the one thing I always found funny, nobody tells you about, like, the first, like, two, three months. They're like, oh, mm-hmm. no, you're good. You, you know, yeah, you'll get through it. Everything's good. And it's like, 
month and a half, two months in, you're like, what in the world is going on? <laughs> what what did we I do? Slept in a week. <laughs> I think you're. We actually, I mean, we actually had a pretty good, pretty easy time with her. Did um, you? You know, the first, well, you know, of course, the first couple of weeks are, you really don't know what you're doing. But um, she was, she slept all night for probably, you know, after those first couple of weeks, for the first two or three months, she slept all night. What? Yeah. Dang. And then, then she started waking up and, and we had to change formula. And I mean, it was just, you know, how it goes. Oh, yeah. But we've got all that pretty much lined out now. And she's sleeping through the night. Everything's good. Oh, very cool, very cool. Well, yeah, I'm glad to hear uh, you got a family started and, all, and you know she's doing well. All that good stuff. Happy birthday to her. We're uh, it, we normally start this out with an introduction about you know who you are, you know where you're from, what you do for a living, that type of thing. Um, you mind going down that road a little bit for us? Yeah. Um, well, I am the editor and producer of the Management Advantage. Um, we've got the web show. Um, website, uh, YouTube channel, Facebook page, Instagram, the whole nine yards. And um, our main thing is habitat management um, and just basically to, you know, mainly inspire people um, is a good way to put it, I guess. Um, you know, if, if it doesn't matter if you're the guy that doesn't own any land and wants to plant a quarter acre food plot. You know, hopefully they watch one of our videos and, and it inspires them to do something better. Um, and, you know, take that all the way from that guy to maybe the guy that owns 500 acres and, and maybe he can pick up a few tips on, you know, certain things that he can do to, to make his property better as well. So that's, that's mainly our gig. I mean, we, we try to do a show, you know, once every two to three weeks throughout the year and we're producing those constantly, um, and trying to keep, you know, our content, um, as up to date as possible. And, um, so that's what we do with that. Uh, we, and we, we cover, like I said, anything habitat related, food plots, um, trapping, turkey hunting, deer hunting. Um, and I'll try to, you know, like the last two years I've been going on a mule deer trip here and there just to kind of change things up a little bit and try to, you know, try to get a little different perspective into that. But we pretty much try to cover all of it. Um, like I said, we're not, we're not mainly a hunting show, but we do like to add some of that in because that's, that's what we all like to do. Uh, we, we love to go chase after the stuff that we're, we're trying to build a home for. So, um, that is my, that would be my main job is doing that. Um, and of course we've got some properties around home here that I do some management on. And I also own, um, a predator removal business called C2 Predator Removal. And we mainly trap coyotes, bobcats, raccoons, skunks, possums, a beaver, otter, basically anything that that a landowner might need removed. Uh, they call us and, and we go in and get it taken care of. And uh, like I said, we travel. It's 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 usually it's a it's a seasonal type deal. Um, we're you know before before we had Allison, you know I would leave the first part of January, and I wouldn't come home until mid-April. Wow. And yeah, I would just go from, you know, most of my jobs are 10 days apiece. So I would go from one job to the next and uh, all the way to mid-April. And then I'd come home, take a breather, and then I would start back again in July, August, and September. Um, I've backed that off quite a bit now just because I've got a little little more of a reason to stay home. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, I've kind of picked and choose my, my really good clients and we go and do those. And like I'll, I leave here in about two weeks. I'll be going to South Texas and uh, we go down there for 14 days and, and trap everything that needs to be trapped. And uh, then I'll come home and I'll go again in March. Um, and then I'll do some in July and a little in August. And I just kind of try to space it out a little bit more than, than what I had been doing. And that way home life's a little bit better. <laughs> so that's kind of what I do um, in a nutshell. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, Casey, how did you get started in uh, hunting and habitat work and even, even in the trapping as well? Who got you started on that? Hmm. I don't know if we've got enough time to talk about this. <laughs> um, I guess, well, I got into hunting, you know, through my dad, of course. I think that's probably 90% of the guys that are and girls that are out there, their yeah. dad takes them out when they're little. And sure. I can remember sitting between my dad's legs in a homemade deer stand with, with no safety strap on and sitting on a five-gallon bucket and watching dad shoot, shoot deer with his bow way back in whew, late 80s, early 90s. And uh, I don't know, just kind of lit a fire in me and was always interested in it. And, um, you know, hunted all the way through high school and college. And uh, when I was in college, I bet met a man by the name of Chuck Sykes. Um, he actually came up to hunt in Illinois and was filming for the management advantage at the time. And we had a, you know, the show, or he had the show on the Outdoor Channel. And, um, they called me and needed me needed somebody to run a camera and long story short I went and ran a camera and two weeks later he offered me a full time job. And that was in two thousand and four, I believe. So I've been doing this ever since then. You know, I started out just running a camera and basically being Chuck's shadow for for golly, I don't even I don't even know how many years. Um and uh you know, learned a lot of stuff from him. I mean, it was it was basically like going to college all over again, you know, learning from him. And um, we were doing a lot of stuff with QDMA, and um, we were doing stuff with Tom James and Eric Long. And just I was always around these guys that had a wealth of knowledge that I was just a sponge and just learning everything I could from them. And... Um, now you were saying gotcha. you were you're following Chuck because he offered you a job. So you were in college in what? 04, you said? 03, 04? Yep, 04. I graduated high school in 03 and, and was in college and was going to school for act business of all things. You know, I okay. wanted to be like an agronomist, um, which in, in its own right is kind of the same thing that we do now. You know, you grow stuff for a living, only it's just in a different spectrum. You know, now we're we're growing wildlife instead of just a row crop. Um, so, like I said, I just learned everything from the people that were around me and the environment that I was in and got to be pretty good at it. And while I was doing that, you know, I was also running the camera for the show. Um, and when I first started, that's all I was doing was just running the camera and um, wasn't even doing any of the editing. And then it rolled into, well, I think I can do this by myself. So we bought a, bought our own editing software and computer and everything, and I started doing all the editing. And um, one thing leads to another. We ended up taking the show off of the Outdoor Channel, uh, mainly because 
the airtime was just so awesome. And yeah, yeah, I mean, it was yeah, it was just unbelievable what they were wanting to charge, and you know, basically trying to push the small guy out. And we've always been that guy. Um, anyway, so we took it off the Outdoor Channel, and this was back in I don't even I don't even know. I don't even know what year it is now. It's 2020. Holy cow. Um, <laughs> I think it was 2010 or 2011 would have been our last year there. And we really were kind of in limbo. We didn't really know what to do. And I said, you know, why don't we design our own website, you know, redesign it and, you know, start a YouTube channel. And Facebook was kind of just, you know, getting more popular then. And I said, well, we can still do this, but do it for free, you know. And, and get it out to, to the masses in a totally different way. And at the time, nobody was doing that. And so we um, took about six months to kind of get it up and going and get it off the ground, and we launched it. And I think that first month, we had like 5,600 views on our YouTube channel. And I was like, well, that's a good start, you know. I, I really didn't know what to expect. And then, before you know it, like two years later, we're hitting four hundred thousand a month. Wow! And then it just like snowballs. And then I just looked at our numbers the other day because we were at the ATA show in uh, 2019. We had 7.6 million unique views through our YouTube and, and uh, Facebook and uh, website, which Good is for you guys. Man. Cool. Wow! Kind of cool. So, yeah, that's impressive. Yeah. So it's, it's it's coming up, and you know, we've, like I said, we've still got a really good group of core guys around us that that really know their stuff, and and not only do they know their stuff, they have really good personalities, and and, and people can trust what they have to say, and, and they've kind of got a, the experience and the science to back up what we're what we're trying to teach people to do. Right. So, so yeah, I'm I'm basically a product of who I hung out with for so long, <laughs> and learned it, and and then you know try to try to convey it in a teachable kind of way with, with also a little bit of, um, you know, recreation and, and entertainment value to it as well. And, you know, in trying to add stories in it and, you know, people like storylines, um, especially when it comes to the deer hunting stuff. And I mean, about every show anymore is doing the same thing. Yeah. You know, just try to try to add a little different spin or, you know, you know, let the viewer have a little bit of ownership in it or, you know, um, to where they they feel like they're there and they're they're part of it. You know that's that all goes back to the to the part where we you know we, we just want to inspire people to to do things better, or do it the right way, or or you know think of their own way to do it, and just to make their place better and uh, to make more wildlife. Well, it's, it's funny you you not really funny, but it's it's interesting you say it that way because I'm kind of you kind of explained it. And, and made me realize why I like you guys so much. Um, <laughs> like, honestly, I, we're, we're, Brian and I are the same guys as, as you guys, and and you're, you're, you're just, you know, a bunch of guys working hard, a bunch of great personalities. Um, you don't try to showboat anything. You're just out there. You even got, like, a, a bluegrassy-type song to the intro and outro to your, to your videos. I love it, man. It's... it's uh, I've been following yeah. you guys for a while, and uh, I, I, I never knew what drew us or drew me to you to watching you guys all the time. But I think I might know now, but based on your explanation the last couple <laughs> minutes. So. 
Well, that actually, you, you talk about that song. You know, it's called Sacred Ground, and that was our, that was the outro. Or it would be, you know, it would always run during the closing credits when yeah. we were on the Outdoor Channel. And a, a good friend of Chuck wrote that song and actually sang it and cut it for us. Nice. And it's, you know, we've only got a couple verses to it, and I think it would be a really good one to go ahead and finish. Somebody in Nashville might pick it up, but yeah, um, that's probably the most requested thing that we have in our inbox on a daily basis is where can I get that song? I want to use it as a ringtone. Or, oh, for I real? love that song. Where, where, where can we find it? And it's just something that we haven't done. I, I guess we need to do something with it, with it, but we just never have. No, I love it. That's uh, that's a great history. It sounds like you've uh, come up from, you know, you've risen through the ranks, if you will, started at the bottom and worked your way up. And uh, I know how hard and challenging editing is, and, Brian, you were doing that just last night. Um, so hats off to you on that, too, because that takes a lot of time and a lot of patience. Thank you. Yeah, I wouldn't say we're at the top. We're still probably closer to the bottom than we are at the top. <laughs> we're, still, we're still hanging in there. <laughs> yeah. How long have you guys we're been doing this for? Totally at still. the management advantage. What's that? How long has the management advantage been on air, period, from the very beginning? Hmm. Let me hear you. Let me think here. Um, been a while, I think. I think Chuck started it in 02 or 03, right around in there. Okay. Um, and at the time, he was actually running a hunting lodge. And this goes way back deep into the archives here. He was running a hunting lodge in Alabama. He had just graduated from... Uh, University of Auburn, and he was running a lodge down there, and Realtree was actually um, leasing the property from the landowner. And, you know, so they ran, Chuck was running all the Realtree guys through there and taking Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Richard Childress and wow. all the all those big-name guys. And Chuck had the idea of having a management show on TV, so he pitched it to some higher-ups. I won't mention names. And... Um, they straight out told him that won't work for TV. Nobody wants to see management stuff on TV. And here we are. You know, it's 20 years later now, but really the trend started at least five years ago, probably closer to that 10 years ago. Yep. Where sure, even if it's even if it's just a hunting show, they're always talking about management or you know, coal bucks or you know planting yeah. a food plot or something Good like point. that. It's just funny how. All that's kind of come back around, and um, it's a, it's a major part of what everybody does now. So, um, kind of neat, but also at the same time, it's like, yeah, I thought we had a good idea. Took long <laughs> enough, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, that's uh, yeah, that's cool. It's exactly what what we like to always talk about, obviously, with this podcast, and and try to help yeah. out people who just want to you know learn and. And be inspired, like you said, is a good way to put it. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, and, you know, here you guys still are cranking the shows out. Love it, man. Good job. Absolutely. I'm gonna. We're gonna do it as long as we're allowed. That's that's for, that's for sure. Well, on YouTube and the internet, it might be forever at that point. So. I hope so. I hope so. The only bad thing is YouTube is starting to throttle back so much stuff that has to do with anything guns or hunting related. That's true. That. It kind of makes you want to get sick to your stomach. That's, 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 the world, that's the world we live in nowadays. Yeah, we could have a podcast nope. on that for we'll a while. We'll have to time. start our own uh, type of YouTube outlet somewhere. 
Yeah, I know. If only if only you had the money and the capital to do what YouTube has done. <laughs> yeah. yeah, seriously. So, well, that's awesome. Yeah. I know. Um, I, I wanted to kind of touch base with you and see what you've been doing lately, and it sounds like you've been trapping. Uh, yeah, um, I have. Um, really, like as soon as I get done, you know, trying to kill a deer that I've been after or whatever, and I, I usually wait, you know, even if I haven't killed a deer, you know, I'll wait till mid-December um, after the gun seasons go out here in Illinois. And <clears throat> when that, whenever that happens, um, I kind of call it my playtime um, because I'm not doing like the the paid jobs that guys are paying me to come in and, and do and do the work. Um, so I'm, I'm basically here in Illinois, and I run a line, you know, on the stuff that I have to hunt here and farmland and basically anywhere I can get permission to go set some traps and just go have fun with it. And it's kind of refreshing to do that every now and then when you're not under pressure to, to you know, run all day, daylight to dark and go, 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 and you yeah. just kind of have fun with it and film a little bit. And so I ran a line uh, here in Illinois. Uh, for about a week, um, I've been fighting weather and, you know, coyote trapping. You, you've got to, especially in Illinois in the wintertime, and when we've been so wet for the last, I don't even know, it feels like two years now, we haven't had dry done. And I'm not complaining because I know we'll probably have a dry summer this year, but um, the last two years, it seems like when I've wanted to start trapping, we get a bunch of rain and then it's a sloppy mess and you can't make your sets. And, um, anyway, this year we had like a week time frame and I hit it pretty good. And, uh, I think I killed, I don't know, I didn't run a big line. I think I ran about 20 or 25 locations, um, all double set. And I killed, uh, just shy of 40 coyotes. In a week? Um, which is, yeah, which isn't bad. Um, hey. it's not stellar by any means. Um, I was hoping for eight to 10 a day on what I was running and the sign that I had. Um, I just don't think we have the the giant coyote population like what we had, say, four years ago on some of it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I did all right, top 40 or just shy of 40, and then packed everything up and cleaned everything up and kind of made a plan to, to go to western Nebraska. And, um, like I said, we went out there and we killed 46 in a week out there. And it should have been – our goal was 50 which was light, um, I think we honestly could have killed 75 if we'd had good weather the whole trip. Right. Um, but, yeah, so those were my two play trips. Um, when we went to Nebraska, it was, you know, more work because we're filming and and just takes more time and trying to teach 14-year-old boy how to trap that had never been out of state, which was kind of cool. And uh, it, was, it was the first for two people. It was the first for him, but it was also first for me because I'd never been in that, you know, location and, and trapping – in that type of country, it's a beautiful country out there. It's just kind of, it's something you dream about as a trapper. Like, I want to go west, you know, and kill, you know, some of these western real fluffy coyotes that are silver color. And, and you know, this year it could possibly be worth 100 to $150 a piece. And, uh, wow. but yeah, it was, it was a really fun pair. Yeah, Casey, a lot of our listeners are, crazy deer managers and uh, obviously doing a lot of habitat management. How, how do you feel that the 
trapping fits into that segment of it. It, it so it fits in perfect, um, and that's you know I, I kind of rambled on the fun stuff there, um, but mainly you know how I really got started into trapping was through the management advantage, and we were filming segments um, with a professional trapper way back when, and he's probably the best in the country. Um, and I was following him around and learning from him and why we why he does it everything and it kind of just struck my interest in it and the more that I followed him around I just it shortened my learning curve into it and immediately when I started doing it I was catching coyotes and I was like wow this is easy you know but honestly I just had a really good teacher um so learning from that and and how it fits into you know wildlife management it's perfect because you know most of the most of the work that I do you know people are hiring me you know say they own 5,000 acres in Alabama or 15,000 or 20,000 acres in um, South Texas or even 1,000 acres. Um, guys will call me and say, I've got a coyote problem. So I'll go check it out and, uh, you know, tell them whether or not it's worth doing. We'll kind of get a plan together. And I'll hit it. Um, most of my clients now are hiring me to do it twice a year. And the reason we do it twice a year is we'll do it um, say in Alabama, we'll hit it, um, which is a short window now because they extended the deer season. So it's, I basically have between February 10th and March 15th to, to trap in, in the state of Alabama because it's in between your deer and your turkey seasons. And most landowners, you know, they don't want you there while they're trying to hunt. So we'll hit it that time of year because you're coming into the spring and we'll put a heavy emphasis on nest predators. You know, your coons, possums, skunks, and while we're there, we'll also kill coyotes and bobcats because usually the weather's cooler and they're traveling a lot more during that time of year. Um, we do it that time of year because you're, you're leading right into the turkey nesting season, um, mm-hmm. and you want to take out, you know, as many of those as you can. Good point. And you're, you're, you're creating a void, basically. Um, you know, Trappers get a bad rap because everybody's like, oh, there's nothing but hillbillies and they just want to kill everything out there. Well, that's not true. Yeah, we want to catch a lot. I mean, that's just, that's, that's just what we do. But, um, you know, going in there during that time of year, we're, we're just, we're creating that void where, um, those turkeys can go on nests and hopefully they can get those poles to hatch. And then, you know, after they hatch, of course, you're going to have a big influx of predators that are going to come back in. And we'll leave them alone. You know that. You know you, we've kind of done our job, and then we'll come back. It's just like mowing your yard. We just keep coming back. We'll take them out at certain times. The second time that people want me to come is right before a fawn drop. And you know, there's a lot like Illinois. We can't do it because um, we have a season because they're on the fur bearer list. But a lot of states, um, they've got they don't have them on the list, and there's no closed trapping season. One being Alabama. So. Depending on what part of the state you're in down there, they've got a really screwed up rut. It can vary by a month, by you know, just by a little bit of ways. But most of my clients down there, you know, say their their fawn drop starts in July, and it might trickle on all the way to September, or maybe in October. So we'll try to go in there in the middle of the summer. Right, you know, if you know, I'll kind of keep close tabs on. My clients and I'll say, are you know, you got trail cameras out? Are you seeing ponds yet? Or, you know, so we'll try to time it 
right before or right during that fawn drop, and we'll go in and we'll we'll put a big focus on coyotes because they're going to be hunting fawns that are just being dropped. And we'll go in there and we'll create that void, and the fawns get dropped, they get up and moving, and they can get away from coyotes, and then we leave them alone again. And we come back in the next year, February, March, and we come back in July, August, or September. And like I said, it's just like mowing your yard. So for a guy that's trying to help out his fawn drop on his own little small property, what what kind of techniques would you recommend for the guy just starting out? Like how how can he be effective on his smaller property? Um, the number one thing I would say to do is um, try to learn as much as you can about it before you actually start doing it. Um, because if you go out there with the wrong tools, the wrong equipment, um, you don't really know how to make a set, you're going to end up, you know, educating more coyotes than you catch. Right. Um, most places have a trapper in the area. And, you know, if you do a little networking and say, hey, you know, you mind if I ride along? And most of them will let you ride along with them. Good point. Um, I would also say watch YouTube. You know, there's, <laughs> there's a million videos on there. We've got a bunch of them on there um, that, that teach you how to make you know, a dirt hole set or a flat ho- or a flat set or how to hang a snare, something like that. Um, and also always look at your state regulations before you start doing it to make sure you're not breaking any laws before you go out there and actually start right. setting traps. But, um, you know, if you've got a small piece of property, um, I would say the biggest key would be to be try to get as much permission as you can surrounding you. Um, cause you know, like those coyotes are going to be traveling a whole bunch. Um, and, um, you know, tr- try to cover as big of a piece as you can surrounding your area. Um, you know, here in Illinois, you know, I said, um, we, we can't trap them, um, out of season. Uh, so like our fawn drop would fit would be like late May, June, right around there sometime. We can't do anything about that. Um, but, you know, we so we, we kind of do with what we have. Um, you know, we can trap. I can't even, this is bad, I can't even remember when our season goes out. I, I hardly ever trap into, into late January here in Illinois. Um, okay. I think our season actually goes out February 15th or February 20th this year. But, you know, I, I'll, do, I'll do a lot of trapping here in that December time frame. And really, my only worry here is the stress that they're putting on the deer herd, not necessarily the fawn drop, because we've we've got pretty decent cover, um, you know, across the state here in Illinois as far as fawning cover. Um, you know, the farms that we that we're managing, we've got really good fawning cover because we've got switchgrass and you know big blue stem, and um, you know we've done really good habitat work in our timber, so we've got plenty of spots for fawns to hide. Um, but when you talk about trapping coyotes in the wintertime here in the Midwest, you're, you're easing the pressure from the deer herd during the time of year that they're stressed the most. Um, and especially on like the properties that, that we're on, we're in big ag country. Um, it may be 150 or like my grandpa's farm is 175 acres. And there's probably only 30 acres of cover or brush on that piece. Wow. And it's out in the middle. It's out in the middle of just a wide open prairie, and see as far as I can see, 
so any deer that are living in that little block of cover, and they, they come out to cornfield to eat in the afternoon, um, the next block of cover may be a mile away. And if a coyote comes running through there, what's that deer going to do? He's going to run all the way across that field, and he's going to burn a whole bunch of calories on during the time of year that he doesn't need to be doing that. So right. going in this time of year, you're just you're, you're you're taking the stress off the herd and making them feel way more comfortable. Um, and really, before I started trapping a lot of these properties, this time of year, our deer would leave. Even if we had the food, the deer would leave, and we didn't really know why. And it's like, and you'd always see them, you know, against a big block of timber, and they'd come out, you know, on the neighbors or somewhere. Um, you know, they'd come out in the field, but they'd always be coming out of a big block of cover. Well, it made sense. It finally made sense. It's like, well, you know, if a coyote comes through there, they don't have to run very far back to get in cover. Sure. And they're not, you know, they're, and they're not burning near as many calories. Well, now, since I've started trapping, we've got a lot of deer that are staying in our little block because they really don't have a lot to worry about. Like mm. last night, I drove drove by and there was twenty some deer out in the field. And I mean, five years ago, you wouldn't have seen that at all. They'd all been on the neighbors. Right. Even if, and like I said, even if we had the food. Interesting. So, so yeah, it has a it has a huge application in the deer management world. Um, you just gotta do your research and you know figure out exactly the program that you want to implement or, or or you know why you're doing it. Um, and it can make a a very large impact. And you know most of the clients that I'm I'm trapping on, especially in Alabama. Um, you know, their fawn crop has exploded and their turkey populations have exploded. And, uh, you know, you pair that, you know, the trapping is not, not the end-all be-all, but you pair that with a good habitat management program and, you know, pro- provide the cover, take out the predators, give them food, boom, you've got a population. So you've been doing this long enough to see that it has a pretty good effect on increasing deer, turkey, and, and maybe even pheasants and other populations that you're trying to bolster oh 100 percent, without a doubt a resounding yes okay. um I, I wouldn't do it if i didn't believe in it as that is a fact now have you ever heard the term compensatory reproduction compensatory reproduction yes way that I have. okay if, mm-hmm. if you could explain that to our listeners um we've had one listener ask us about that and uh, we tried our best to answer it but like to hear from you. Okay, well, I've actually got a little bit of first-hand experience with it um, because I was kind of curious. When I first started trapping this large tract in South Texas, um, the first time I went and done it, um, this place, they hired me to go down there in January and then come back in late March. And the first time I was ever there was late March. And those coyotes that we were catching, you know, this is going to sound more, but, but a lot of the females that we were catching were pregnant. And, um, you know, those are the best coyotes to take out during that time of year because when that coyote goes to have her pups, what's she going to be doing? She's got to feed a whole family. So she's going to be bringing back as many fawns, as many rabbits, turkeys, whatever she can get her mouth on, she's going to be bringing that back. And anyway... As we were doing it, I was curious. I just wanted to see because I've, 
I had always heard that a coyote is one of the only animals that can compensate how many young they have according to their population. So I started doing a little necropsy on them. I wanted to see how many pups they were having. And that first year, they averaged between three to five. It was just one would have three, four, and this one would have five, three, four, five, three, four, five. So, you know, it was averaging right around in there. Oh, that's cool. Um, by the third year of going back, I was seeing between 8 and 11 because we were killing so many of them off of that one place. But we were covering, like I said, we were creating that void. And, you know, obviously you're going to have a coyote move in within, you know, say a month. And she's going to be like, wow, I guess their body can recognize that their population is down and they will compensate for it. Um, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. No, that's uh, that's kind of what we're trying to mm-hmm. find out. We've heard, I've heard that before multiple times. I found that super interesting. And I've done some research on it. And there's varying uh, opinions on why killing coyotes doesn't even work. Or, you know, because yeah, you're yeah. going to kill and them with a mature I, pair. The only reason then, I started paying attention to it was because I was, I was, I was curious. Because I right. heard the same thing. I'm like, oh, come on, you know. But I've actually seen it. You know, it went from, you know, say an average of four to an average of eight just in a matter of three years. And it might have happened a little sooner than that. But I just, I, I just, is an astounding difference. But to argue that what we're doing doesn't work is, is, is totally false. Because like I said, we're creating a void during yep. a certain time of the year. That's the bingo right there. Yeah. That's the key right there. I mean, as a matter of fact, what we're doing is actually improving the coyote health. You know, a lot of people don't want to hear that. Explain. But, I mean, we're taking out, you know, if we if we weren't there to do it, they're going to go on a fight. They're going to, they're a boom and bust. They're going to, you know, be a low number. They're going to compensate for it with their breeding. They're going to boom. And then all of a sudden, they're going to eat all your fawns. They're going to eat a bunch of rabbits. They're going to eat a bunch of quail. And then all of a sudden, they don't have anything to eat. And they've, they're they competing against each other. And then disease comes in, parvo, mange. And then you got a bunch of mangy coyotes running around that look like chupacabras. And then they <laughs> die of starvation. They die of freezing to death. Yeah, good point. And then they bust. And then you have a super low population. And then you've got a deer, boom. And, all, and then all of a sudden you got a whole bunch of fawns running around. So they've got a lot of food. And here comes the cow popping. And it just, it's just a constant roller coaster that you're on. Yeah. And you have no way to control it. Okay. Well, we were put on this earth to manage the land. So Amen. what we do is we go in there and we kill a certain number of cows every year. Like I said, you're not killing every one of them. I don't care what anybody says. If somebody tells you they can kill every cow out there, they're lying to you. But... You know, we're going through there, and we're killing a certain number of them, and we're keeping that population even. Yeah, they may be breeding more, and they may be producing more young, but we're there every year to knock that right back out. And we're just going to keep a level population of them. And as you're doing that, your, your deer herd steadily climbs, and then you manage your doe population, you manage your, your buck population, 
you let them, you're just, everything stays in a balance and it goes against what a lot of the bunny fruiters want to tell you. Yeah. Because they're not, they're not necessarily there doing the work. They're not seeing it. They're not living it. They just, they're reading from a textbook and trying to tell you that it's not right to mess with the ecosystem. Um, nope, man, I, I freaking love this podcast. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, it all makes sense. So or I heard that from, I think it was like humanesociety.org or some honey food. Oh, of course. Said, yeah. Right. And, but to your point, you're managing the ebbs and flows, which you can help your deer population slowly increase while you're doing that. And you're doing it at the most important times of the year, you know, turkey yep. poles and fawns. I don't care if yep. you are killing a bunch off and more are coming back. You're giving the game that we're trying to manage a chance to grow at the time they need it. So maybe they're right. Maybe there are more coming back, but at the same time, you also gave, you know, the turkeys and the deer a chance to, to breed yep. and their fawns to live and, and poles to live. So I love it. I can see yep. it. It makes sense. It's one of, I mean, it's one of those things where if you start doing it, you need to stick to your guns. Yep. Like I said, it's just like, mowing, it's just like mowing your yard. If you go in there and offset that ecosystem, maybe one or two years and you stop doing it, you might go through a year or two, where you don't have any fawns because those coyotes have just made a huge rebound and then it'll take that it'll uh, take that that ebb and flow a long time to re kind of reset. That's a good tip. Don't so, stop doing it. Okay. Yeah, I mean it's it's one of those things that you know when you start doing it you got to commit to it and it's kind of it's just like you know your herd management and like when you're trying to kill a four or five year old deer you can't you can't pull down into that lower age class or the following year you're going to have a shortage of them. Right. And it's just. It's all relative, and it all goes together. Good thoughts, man. Appreciate that. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I always wondered about a lot of that stuff, so thanks for answering that. Now, I, moving on from trapping, because I know we could probably talk trapping all night. Um, I'd be out of breath. Hey, I guarantee you we'll have you back on for some more trapping talk. That was, that was awesome, man. It is a big part of habitat management. We've had a couple other guys on it. We've touched on it. Um, one guy we talked a lot about it with, um, something I've never done. I'm very interested in it, but uh, it, it's very cool. So, it, you know, yeah. the amount of coyotes you guys are taking out is just insane to me. But um, the, It's a lost art, and there's not a lot of people okay. that are doing it. There you go. I highly suggest. But you don't start doing it, though, because you'll be so addicted to it that you won't even want to deer hunt anymore. I'm not even lying. <laughs> no way. <laughs> All right. Well, it don't is. tell my wife that, please. So, because I might, yeah. uh, I, I don't need any more hobbies, Casey. But that's, that's, a, that's a great <laughs> point. So, moving on to just some more habitat management-related stuff uh, on the properties you're at. You're in Illinois. Um, what are you yeah, working sure. on? other than trapping this time of year or coming up here real soon? This time of year, and um, I'm kind of in a, just a, like a limbo right now. Okay. Because mainly because the property that that I have access to and have you know, a chance to manage on, I've kind of done what I need to do. Um, other than, you know, I've got a little bit of timber work to do, actually a lot, but I don't want to go in there right now. Um Deer season's still in here, so kind of waiting for that to get done, and okay. I want to find a few shed antlers, but, you know, going into, say, March, early April. Yeah, um, perfect. Right before the green-up, I've got a bunch of TSI stuff to do, and, and we've got a terrible problem with bush honeysuckle. 
um, it's like overtaking our farm. And if you watched the latest episode we did with uh, the deer I called Nobody, um, where he died is in the thickest, nastiest brambles of bush honeysuckle. It's in the center part of the farm. Good bedding area, but that bush honeysuckle grows so fast that it's starting to canopy that stuff out. So that's my biggest goal is to get in there and just hand-to-hand combat, uh, chainsaw, and uh, hit it with some triclop here and try to get rid of it. And that's just that's going to be a never-ending battle uh, yeah. on that farm. So you just got to kind of pick your times when you want to do it. And you know, I try, like I said, I try not to go in there this time of year just because I want the deer to, you know, stay there. We've got plenty of food for them. We've got cover, uh, switchgrass, all that. Um, I just don't want them to leave right now and drop their antler out. You know, I want to find some antlers, of course. Right. So I'll I'll, I'll stay out of there usually until mid March, and then you know we'll spend we'll have a month window in there where we can go in and and really do some work and, you know, move some trees down as that round if we wanted to want to. But, but like I said, we've – honestly, we've built that habitat on that farm about as much as we can, and I'm kind of maxed out on it. So at the moment, I'm actively looking for a farm to buy. Um, okay. me, and the, me and the wife are ready to buy one, so we're in the market for that. And as soon as I can find one, then we'll have a whole lot of projects to work on. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And you have uh, Chase up there managing a bunch of that bush honeysuckle in one of your videos. Was that on your place? Yeah, yeah. He came down, and that was when I was really starting to learn about how bad it was. I don't know how long ago that video was, but I remember you guys in there fighting that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I've done a little bit every year since then. I think we did that video three, four years ago probably. Um yeah, I've been doing a little bit on it. He came down to the farm and kind of gave us a rundown on it. I wanted Chase to be in there, too, because he's really good at articulating how things need to be done. Um, I call him the governor. He's going to be the next governor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he, we had him on uh, our episode number 23, which, like you said, was a long time ago. I think uh, October uh, 2018, maybe. Shoot. Brian, we've been doing this yeah. for a minute. Um, yeah. Anyways, I, for some reason, I remember that video. You guys just in there sweating your butts off, working on that, killing that stuff all day. Um, and we yeah. just sat it there, kind of sparked a, a, you know, just a memory there. But th- that's something you guys do uh, over the winter. It's easy. Or is a plant too dormant then to get after it, or can you do it during well, you know, March or it's April? The first. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do. I, I want to try to get in there when the plant's dormant, and I'll just oh, okay. I'll cut. I'll, I'll you know I'm doing it the hard way. I mean, there's there's a lot of things that people are testing out now. Like the state of Illinois is actually um, doing some tests on uh, foliar spraying it with like a helicopter and airplane. Oh wow! And they're and they're doing it. Um, but see, that plant is the first thing to green up in the spring, and it's the last thing to lose its leaves in the fall. <laughs> so our you know, our trees and all the plants and everything will usually be dormant, you know, by the first week of November. Um, and, you know, our leaves will be dropping, so all those leaves drop off, and then they'll fly over the top of it with a, uh, I believe it's called Rodeo. It'd be a water-safe roundup. Um, don't quote me on that. But anyway, they're doing an aerial application, and they're and they're killing it while the leaves are still green on, a, you know, like I say, a warm November day. And then the following year, you don't have anything but stems of it. Down there, and then 
you know, your native, um, you know, your native plants can come back basically because it's overtaken everything. Um, but I'm doing it the hard way. I'm going in there because, and I, I kind of have to. We don't really have um, enough cover. I think there's like a minimum. I don't know if it's a 20 or I don't know if it's 20 or 40 or 60 or 80 acres. Um, that some you know before they'll actually come out and fly it. Oh really? For you? Yeah, and I'm still I'm just I've got to micromanage everything on that farm because it's so small. I mean, you know, I say small. Everybody's like, oh, what? It's 170 acres. Well, it is, but there's a, a lot of that is small. Yeah. A lot of that is a lot of that is ag field. So I'm I'm looking at you know 30 acres or you know or you know I've got certain spots that. It, Seems like a mature deer wants to live in a five-acre spot come October, so I go in there and try to manipulate that a little bit to, you know, put it in their favor to want to live there and me have a chance to hunt them. Hey man, you're talking so, to the micromanager podcast here, guy. <laughs> we we get it, we get it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you gotta be. And, yep. You know, it probably it'd probably be a little different if I had a thousand acres, but not everybody, not hardly anybody has that. You right. Know? Um. You know, give me a. 30 or 40 acre, give me five 40 acre pieces over one 200 acre piece all day, and you can have a lot of fun with it. Um, but, but yeah, so I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm doing it the hard way. I'm going in there um, right before green up, cutting them at ground level, and then spraying the stump with trichopyr. Um, and that, that, that'll usually clean them up. And, um, you know, somewhat, like I said, it's like, you cut one, and you turn around, and you cut one, and you turn around, and you cut another one, and it's like, before you know it, you've cut 200 of them, and it doesn't look like you've done anything at all. Jeez. <laughs> oh, so it, it takes a long time to get it done, but I, like I said, I enjoy doing it. And, you know, I kind of, I'm a little more selective than a lot of people. A lot of people just want to go in there and drop a bomb, but I can't necessarily do that. Um, because if I did it, you know, our, our wood would be just wide open. So I try to go in there incrementally and trying to make it, you know, a 10-year plan rather than a one-year plan on, on getting it fixed. So, yeah. yeah. Chris, you're, you're talking about uh, having a lot of open ground there. What type of uh, food plots or habitat strategy have you found that are working in that big open ag country that you're talking about there? Okay. Um, the biggest thing... I want to look at is give them something that they don't have. Um, so like the last two years, and this is not rocket science by any means. I mean, how many videos have you watched where they talk about planting a food plot? Um, right. You know, the last two years we've had corn on our farm and, you know, corn is a really good attractant to deer, but I wanted to give them something in that whole maze of corn and brush that, um, was different to them, you know, deer-like variety. So, you know, a, just a good solid um, annual mix, brassicas, peas, rye, wheat, uh, a couple type, types of clover. And of course, you've seen us plant uh, Durant clover as well. So, like the big food plot there where I killed nobody. Um, it's it's uh, about two acres, and I've, I've, an acre of it is uh, was in um, Pennington's, uh, not deer greens, it was in feeding frenzy. And it's basically seven or eight different mixtures, annual clover, brassica, turnip, uh, rape, uh, radishes, wheat rye, 
I think it's got oats in it as well. So it's it's just basically got everything. And then the other acre, and I shaped it in. I shaped it kind of weird. It's a square plot, but I shaped it. I, I just kind of made it to where the deer kind of meander through it and, and pick one thing and another. And, and what I, the other part that I planted was uh, uh, Durana clover and chicory, and um, had the redneck blind on it. It's all surrounded by switchgrass, and it's directly next to their bedding area, the closest I could get it to it. So all, really all a deer has to do is stand up, stretch, take a couple steps, and he's in the food plot. Um, and that, that seems to work really well. Um, of course, you want to make sure your soul is right. I think that has a lot to do with um, the success of a food plot. For sure. Um, that, that so many people overlook, and it's so easy to overlook because it's not exciting. Like, who wants to go take a soil test? And, <laughs> and, and spend $10 on a soil test when it's like, eh, yeah. So it's really easy to overlook. But, you know, if your soil's not right, you know, the plants can't take up nutrients. And whatever grows there, you know, may not taste good to the deer. So, I mean, that's that's the biggest key is getting it to taste good to the deer because you want it to be attractive. Absolutely. So, Plus, you don't want to be throwing too much fertilizer or not enough. Save exactly. yourself a lot of aggravation. Exactly. So, so yeah, I mean, I just try to, to answer your question. The short version is just try to give them something that they don't have that's immediately available. Okay. Yeah, that's always um, a great great way to approach it. Yeah, I saw some I mean, of that uh, switchgrass that you guys planted. Was that on your farm that, that was just posted not long ago? With the uh, uh, Yeah, maybe. I've got about. One, I think it was just a one-year growth. It was pretty impressive. Yeah, that might have been Tom. We did that okay. if you watch if you watch the show through the summer. We did a project called Project Seventeen, and he bought the adjoining uh, fifty-eight acres and it had that had a seventeen-acre field in it, and it was all ag. And we took it, or we didn't, or we did, but Tom designed it. And he like when he first showed me the map, I'm like, my God, you're a madman. And the, the more that we started to work on it, he broke it up into, you know, this week we're going to do this, and this week we're going to do that, and that's that's the way you got to do it um, to make it feasible. So we he he kind of orchestrated all of it, and we planted trees and switchgrass and big blue stem and Indian grass in places, and then we did clover fire breaks and roads, and then we did uh, you know soybeans and some of the Pennington dual season. And then we came back in and we did the fall food plots and it uh it was a really cool piece that we did. It was probably the most comprehensive um I won't do I won't say documentary, but as far as you know, it kinda was. I mean we documented everything that we did to that piece to turn it into nothing but wildlife from row crop. So it was kinda neat. And we had a really good following with it and we're really gonna try to do some more of those projects in the future. Because it, you know, people people really seem to like, you know, watching us do it one week, and then two weeks or a month later, you come back and you show them what we did and what it's yeah. looking like. Yeah. And you know, we started doing that in March, February, March, and we ended it. I mean, we took it all the way through the whole gamut, and then he actually killed a really nice deer on it in November, and um, that deer came right out of that. Stuff that we'd worked on in the morning and come up in that ridge top really? bed and kill him. Yeah, it was. Very I mean, it was like a story, storybook ending to 
to the, all the work that we had done. And, you know, he was, he was the mastermind and I was mainly the videographer, but he had a good group of guys that were coming over every weekend and working on it. And we were cooking out and having some adult beverages at the end of it. And it was a really, really good time, but that's uh that's the kind of thing that we really want to try to work on more in the future instead of just like random shows. Um, just to, you know, really pick certain projects and take the viewer through that experience through the whole year. And I think it really hits home hits home really well. Yeah, I think uh I, I know exactly what Jerry you're talking about over at Tom's place. Um love to have him on here sometime too. I think uh to explain to the listeners, if you guys haven't checked that out, pretty much taken a, well, a barren field, just an empty field, and he, I, yeah, I mean, he went with, uh, you know, he was planting oak trees and switchgrass, like you said, uh, clover fire breaks, and and really going from a field to a full habitat plan, um, yeah, instead of just corn, cut the corn down, replant corn or beans next spring or or summer or whatever, um. It's, I I applaud you guys for all that work. I mean, this is a shit ton of work in that in that 17 acre field or wherever it was. Um, and yeah, it, it was. You know, that's it was fun. It was a super fun project to be a part of, and um, like you don't, it's it's something rare that you really don't get to see a lot. Yeah. Um, especially in this part of the world because cash rent prices are so high. Right. And a lot of times when you buy a piece of property, you need that you know, utilize every bit of income you can to be able to pay for it. And uh, Tom was willing to forego that and turn it all into wildlife. That's pretty special. And yeah. you don't see that. And, you know, that that particular piece, you know, me and Tom were talking about it literally like 10 minutes before we started the very first thing. And he's like, what do you think of them? We were looking at the map. And he's like, what do you think of the plan? And I said, I like it. I like it a lot because – you know, that county that he's in, you know, that was in Park County, Indiana. Um, if you ever drive through there, it's, it's all it is is row crops and mature timber. And that's all you see. There's no CRP programs. There's no early successional habitat. There's no native grasses anywhere. And you're like, how is there any turkeys around? How are there any deer around? There's no nesting habitat. There's no fawning cover. But they've got a, they do have a good population of all that, but that project that we were implementing provided every bit of that that was missing. And it's like a wildlife manager's dream when you see that. You're like, boom, this is going to make this property explode, and it's going to have an advantage over everybody around, and it's going to be incredible. And, 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 you know, he's just getting started with it. You know, we had a really good growing season. Everything, everything worked to a T. But the next three, four, five years is where he's really going to see the benefit to it. Oh yeah, and kind of how we got started in this conversation on, on this subject. That buck you killed, nobody. Um, yep. That buck named nobody. What's that video called? Where you guys, you guys title that video or anything specific? No, I just called it Nobody. Okay, so yeah, just for the listeners, yeah. if they want to check that out, I, I recommend you go see that. Casey shoots a big old buck on there with his bow. Um, yeah. That setup, you mentioned you were you're getting that food tied up close to their bedding mm-hmm. as close as you can. 
It looked like yep. you had some switch in the background. Is there any mm-hmm. sort of strategy that you had? I, I know in the video you cover how the thermals were busting you before, and then you moved the blind back and that solved that problem. I understand that. Um, mm-hmm. But what made you, you know, plant that plot there? What, what is the betting? You know, like what, what was the real ticket there, maybe in layman's terms? Just real quick, if you don't mind. If you look at the map of the property, that piece is dead center in the middle of that farm. Okay. And if I could recommend, you know, anybody that's planning a food plot, try not to plant it on the on the freaking fence line. And I've, I've seen it a bunch. Um, and basically, that's the grass is always greener on the other side syndrome. I mean, you said, how many times have you seen people put their you know, their tree stands right on the fence line and looking over your stuff. Every time. Um, yeah, every time. It's like people cannot do it. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to plant that food source dead in the center of it. Um, and, you know, the the draw, basically that farm is just, the, you know, the cover, the, the, you know, the original cover. When we first started, it was just a cattle farm, and it was all fescue grass and a strip of timber with a creek running through the middle of it. And since we've taken the cattle off, that timber, of course, started to thicken up. And unfortunately, right now, a lot of it is bush honeysuckle that we're trying to, you know, incrementally take care of. Um, but, you know, just the natural bedding area on that farm was super close to, to that area where I wanted to plant that food plot. So um, it was basically, you know, every property is unique. It's all going to be different. Um, that's one thing about planting food plots is you, you kind of need to know your property before you, you know, you, you plant it to, you know, you, you plant, you plant it where the deer want to be anyway or where they're close to already. You can't just plant it out in the middle of nowhere and expect a deer to walk all the way across the field in the daylight and get to it. You're kind of improving so, or maybe trying to influence them or uh, just bring them in, yeah. you know, as easy yeah. as you can because they're pretty close already. Yeah, I mean, I would I would try to influence the deer movement or the deer bedding through habitat improvements, not a food plot. Okay. Um, you know, I've basically when we started working on that farm, we had to learn how to hunt it again because you know they had the bare bones of the timber there, and it was wide open timber because the cows had been running through it, and then you had all fescue grass that was, you know. 90% of the year was three inches tall because the cows had grubbed out. Well, when we took all them off, you know, we, I basically insulated the farm with a 60-foot buffer switch all the way around it and then planted, you know, two-acre pocket of it here and an acre pocket of it here and just, you know, wherever I had available um, and just feathered that habitat out into the ag field. So it wasn't just timber and then field edge. It was timber, um, scrub brush, and just kind of made that, that feather, and then it went into native grass, and then it goes into the food plot, and then it goes out of the back field. So those deer, a lot of times right now, since we've built that habitat, they're bedding within 20 yards of that food plot. Wow. And so I've had, like I said, I've had to learn how to hunt it again, and you really, we can't hardly get into the timber anymore because we're bumping deer. Um, certain stands I do have in the timber, but I only hunt those during the rut when the deer are moving really well, and I only hunt them on certain winds and certain speed, wind speed, so you can actually get in there without spooking deer. But most of the time, we're hunting on the edge. Like, my favorite 
stand on that farm is there's not a tree within 50 yards of it. It's just an old oak tree that was out in the middle of the pasture. And, I, you know, when I build all the habitat and plant the switchgrass and everything, um, it's in like an old fence row, and all these deer kind of like funnel by it. I actually wow. killed a deer out of that stand last year. Um, I shot him with my shotgun. I was trying to kill him with my bow. I had several encounters with him. But, yeah, so we've had to, like I said, we've had to learn how to hunt it again just because of the habitat changed it. And, um, you know, now our biggest fear is spooking deer out of it. We've got the deer now. We just got to, we've got to hunt it smart. And, you know, like, as you know, you know, the, the, the hardest job and the, and the most important thing during season is hunting those deer and not letting them know that you're hunting them. Right. This is the biggest thing. Um, so, like, uh, the stand, the, the redneck line that I killed nobody out of this year, um, I replaced that. I replaced the redneck haybell bind with the six by seven bind, and I moved it back, you know, maybe five to six yards. Um, that was and, all, huh? And you can literally get you like you have to walk through a sixty foot switch a strip of switch that's over your head, and I didn't even cut a trail. I just kind of walked it two or three times, and made it to where you could walk through it without making a lot of noise and literally you walk into the ladder and when you get halfway up the ladder you come out of the switchgrass and you open the door That's bad and then you walk in you step into the blind and you look out the window and there's eight deer standing 40 yards from the blind yeah. and it's like this is money yeah and the very first time i hunted it i was like man that was the best decision we ever made <laughs> and i hunted that stand the whole year which wasn't very much, probably five or six times maximum. Um, and honestly, could have hunted it way more because I never had a single deer know that I was in that blind. Wow. All those deer, they come out, you know, they start their evening ritual, they come out, and they feed a little bit, walk right by the blind, and then they head out to the main ag fields. And I'll watch them. You know, I may, I may have to stay in there. 30 or 45 minutes after dark, but I'll wait till those deer can't see me get out of the blind. I get out of the blind and I walk straight away. Never have a single deer blow at me. Even the night that I killed that deer, I shot him. It's really early. Um, it was probably 30 or 45 minutes before sunset. Oh, wow. I had another hour. I had another hour to sit there. And my lighted knock is sitting in the middle of the food plot. And after I shot him, I had like 19 more deer come out and walk right by that lighted knock. Never even looked at it. I don't know why. Um, actually had really sad stories. I had one of my, the biggest deer on the farm came out after I'd shot him. Um, I wouldn't have shot him anyway because it was after camera light, but he came out and he stood 20 yards away. What? And sparred, sparred with a little two-year-old How for big? 10 minutes and yeah, that's that's a whole other story. That's oh man, whole, we can go into it, but it's a, yeah, it's a bad one. Let's do it. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, I mean, uh, before we go into that story, yeah. uh, the whole uh, we talk about access to your stands on this podcast mm-hmm. probably as much as we talk about food plots. Um, yes, sir. I mean, that's the one thing I've learned over the years is more important or as important. 
And the whole climbing out of the switchgrass into the blind, I that that gets a guy like me excited, man. That's freaking awesome. Um, so good, you know, kudos to you with that. But back to your your biggest buck on the farm walking by after camera light. Tell me <laughs> about that, because that's of course it's yeah, going to happen so, after you smoke um, that that other giant buck. Yeah. Of course it's going to happen. Sorry, you cut out there for a second. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, of course that's going to happen after you shot the other buck. That's how it works, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. But I, it's, pro- it's partly my fault because I jinxed myself this year. Um, you know, everybody that watches the show knows that you know, when deer season comes in, I'm solo filming and solo hunting. I do all my own filming. Yep, so um, I just I like doing it that way better. Um, I don't know why. Um I don't really like to rely on not that nobody could do it, but I know that if I screw it up and I don't get it on video, it's my fault. You know, so it's one of those things. And I don't know. There's something about trying to do it yourself that makes it feel like you, you know, you've accomplished something better. I don't know. Well, anyway. it's pretty much there's, there's really nothing more challenging to bow hunting than trying to get the mature buck on film by yourself yeah. with a bow while you're trying to kill him. I mean, yeah, and to tell another story, um, ever since I've started doing that and solo filming, and Chuck can attest to this, if I had another guy in the tree with me, uh, and maybe it was just inexperience at the time, um, but like I would rush shots, I would miss deer, I would spook deer, I just like freak out when a big deer would come into view. And since I started filming myself, it's like, that camera like slowed the game down. Yep. For me, and it just like I don't know. It just makes your nerves like mm-hmm. it just like if I see a deer and he's coming, like I'm picking spots out and and I'm like it's almost like I'm editing the film as the hunt's going, and I'll like you know as he's coming I get this shot, and then I'll move the I, you know I'm not scared to move that camera because I've got a second camera over my shoulder that's getting the deer and me moving nice. and the whole nine yards, and then. You know, once he gets into range, it's like, okay, I've done my job. I've planted this food plot. I've planted that habitat or whatever. I'm filming him. Everything's working out, and he's in range. Do your job, Casey. You know, calm your nerves. Execute the shot. Let's do this. And, I, and you know, of course, not every time that works, but when it does work, you know, it's awesome. Nothing better. After and then after the sh- I shoot the deer, then that's whenever I lose it. Like I just I can't even hardly stand up in the tree. You know the feeling. Everybody does. Yeah. Um, well, it's all just kind of washes over you, like everything that you've done. But um, yeah, it's there's nothing like it. That's for sure. Do you think that that trying to film the deer and get good footage or uh, at least get them on film, get the get the shot on film. Do you think that takes your mind off of the buck fever? I know it does for me. Absolutely. Ever since I've yeah, been filming. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely it does. Yeah, um, like I don't freak as much anymore until afterwards, so it's all done because I'm like, focus on the camera, you know, blah, blah, blah. It just takes your mind off mm-hmm. losing your SHIT, if you will. Um, <laughs> it, I absolutely. never thought it would happen. I still get buck fever like crazy, but... Uh, it definitely helps, which is weird. Yeah, it helps. It helps make better decisions. That's a fact. As far as shooting a deer and making sure he's you know broadside, not quarter to the year, or, 
you know, I've passed up a lot of deer this year because it wasn't on video. So I'll go back to the story and why that deer walked away. And Yeah, um, finish that one. Rewind to before season starts. You know, I was talking to a buddy. We were talking about filming. and He's like, how many deer does that camera cost you? And what did I say? None. Never had a camera. It cost me a deer. And I actually knocked on wood when I said it. And I shouldn't have ever said it to start with. Because honestly, I've never really had a camera. It cost me a deer. Um, so, explain what that means to, to the listeners. How, how would a camera cost you a deer? Uh, a camera would cost you a deer. You know, say you were trying to film him and... Um, you got sidetracked with the camera and he got through your shooting lane or you were messing with the camera and he ended up missing him or you run out of camera light Bingo. and you can't shoot him. So this year I shoot that deer. So the, I, I killed nobody on the third hunt of the year. Third time I was in the tree stand. Um, and, you know, I would have liked, I, I don't hunt really hard early. I really don't start to hunt hard until November. I just kind of play my ear, uh, play the weather fronts, check trail cameras on the right winds, and if I've got a deer doing the right thing at the right time, then I'll go in and try to kill him. And that deer was doing that. I mean, he he showed up, and I was like, you know, I've got two other deer on the farm that are bigger, and I score more than him, but I'm I don't care. You know, my goal is to kill a mature deer. I don't care what he scores. Um, I just I love it. I don't care. Like, we killed Oscar a couple of years ago. I filmed my brother kill him, and, like, you just thought we killed a 250-inch non-typical. It was just awesome just because we had history with that deer. And this deer shows up, and I was getting pictures of him, and I had some cell cams up. had some pictures of him the day before, so I went in there and, and shot him. And, no, he wasn't the biggest deer on the farm, but I had, you know, shoot, I probably got 30 minutes of video, and I didn't show that in the show. Just because there wasn't a lot of time for it. Um, but he was just, he's a five-year-old deer that was most likely topped out. I mean, he was, you know, mid-130s, maybe 140. Really nice massive. Uh, good width, short times, but just a massive body, huge body. Um, so he walks out, you know, I'm like, yep, there he is, no doubt. Pick up my bow. I mean, no hesitation. And all this I knew that I had two other deer on the farm that were way bigger than him antler-wise. So I shoot him. Um, obviously, if you watch the show, I, I thought I made a bad shot. Um, hit way back, like behind the last rib. Well, we find the deer, and he, he, he literally didn't run 15 yards past where I seen him last. Oh, good. Um, yeah, it was a huge relief. I thought that was going to be a really long track job. But anyway... Uh, like 10, not 10 minutes, I killed that deer. It was, like I said, 40, 30 or 45 minutes before sunset. But I wanted to sit there because I, like, there was 10 other deer in the plot when I, when I shot him. Oh, and they all stood, they all just stood there like, what happened? And they went back to feeding. And then, like, here comes the parade after that, just one deer after another. And I didn't want to, I really didn't want to, spooked those deer off into the brush because that's where that deer ran that I had shot and I didn't want them to take him with them, you know, if, if they ran out of there. So I waited 
I waited until 30 minutes after dark until all the deer had cleared the food plot. And I didn't have a flashlight, nothing. I just slipped. I left my bow in the, in the box blind, all my stuff. And I walked down there, I grabbed the arrow, and I walked back to my truck. And never turned the light on until I got back to the truck. And then I seen that my arrow was really bloody. But to back up, sorry, I'm rambling really bad right now. Dude, these are the best stories um, in the world. You're good. Go. <laughs> no, I but, love it. So I wanted, to sit, I wanted to sit there as long as I could to make sure I didn't spook any deer. And right, I mean, right after what would have been like good camera light, this deer steps out. And I called him Double Deuce, and he was a mainframe pinpointer, and he had double kickers off of each G2. That's why I wow. called him Double Deuce. And he was a 165-inch deer. Um, would have, I mean, would have been one of the biggest deer I've ever killed with my bow. And he literally walks out, and I could have shot him if I wanted to, but it wouldn't have done me any good. Um, I just didn't, you know, even if I hadn't already shot a deer, I wouldn't have shot him. And that was the first time. The second time with that specific deer was on November 1st. I rattled in him and seven other bucks at one time. And I had him at 53 yards in the morning and it was broad daylight, perfect. And I just didn't want to shoot at him at 53 yards. Um, and he walked off, wouldn't come any closer. Of course, all the seven other bucks walked right in range. And he stared at me and went on about his business. And then November 2nd, I had that deer. And we talk about access and how I could access that redneck blind really well. I've got another stand that's in the timber that I rarely hunt until it's right. And it was right. And we had to, I, it's really nice to go in there, you know, before daylight, if you have a wind speed that's above 10 mile an hour, mainly so you can hide yourself going into the stand. Okay. Um, you know, sound, sound wise and movement wise. Um, and the stand, how it's positioned, like literally it's a big white oak and it's right on the bank of about a 10-foot deep ditch. And I can walk down our north property line, and I can hit that ditch, and I can walk all the way down that ditch 100 yards and climb out of that ditch and climb right into the stand, and not a single deer knows I'm there. The only problem is you got to walk through leaves, and it's really loud. But when you have that wind speed that's, you know, above 10 mile an hour, then a deer can't hear you. So Good November 2nd, so November 2nd, I get into that stand, and it's well before daylight, and I'm strapping on my camera arm and putting everything up. Get everything situated, bow hanging up, knock an arrow. And I turn around, and I'm just standing, I just arms crossed. And it is 6.07 a.m. I just looked at my phone. And I look down, and I see the deer stand up at 28 yards. What? And I'm like, and it was in like a real thick patch of brush and stuff. And I was like, there's a deer right there. I swear it just stood up. And it stood there forever and it shook off. And I couldn't tell what it was. And it takes two steps. And there's double deuce. No way. At 28 yards. He walked in with him bedded. He oh, was bedded. 
down at 28 yards and let me put my camera arm up and the whole nine yards. He never knew I was in the world. Wow. Yeah. So he steps out of the brush and he's at 28 yards and I'm like, whoa, that's him. So I'm like grabbing my bow and turning the camera on at the same time. And I get the bow turned around and I'm facing it at him and I look at my camera screen, it comes on and it's black. And I'm like, oh no. So six, I'll never forget this till the day I die. Sunrise that morning was 6.35 a.m. and it was 6.07. So typically around 6.09 I should have camera light. But right before I got in that stand that morning, there was a front coming in, like I said, the wind was blowing and the clouds rolled in. And it stayed darker longer than what it should have. If it had been a clear, sunny morning, I'd have killed that deer on video. And when he he stopped right there. I actually drew my bow. And I settled the pin. And I'm like, nope, can't do it. And he took five steps. He stopped in another opening. And he took five steps, and he stopped in another opening. He was just, like, parallel. And he walked, did a half moon all the way around the tree, like, Yep, I know you can't shoot me because you're trying to film me. <laughs> and he walked out of my life, and I was like, no. And that was the last time I seen him. They killed him. The neighbors killed him. Oh, no. Yeah, the neighbors killed him a couple days later uh, um, right, on, right on our property line. Crazy. Yep. And then I had another deer that was 160. Six, one sixty-seven, something like that. Wow. A dude that I called Tito. Uh, he was a split G2, really like thirteen or fourteen-inch G2s and thirteen-inch G3s. Um, I was walking out one morning, and he was bedded down in the middle of the cornfield with a doe, and I was solo filming, and you can't really spot and stalk and film at the same time, but. At the same time, I had to walk out by them, and they would have smelled me and seen me. So I was like, well, I'm just going to crawl up there and see if I can kill him. He's a five-and-a-half-year-old deer. I just, I'm going to try to see what I can do. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, eh, take it or leave it. You know, I'd rather, it's kind of an addiction when you start filming. You want to get, you know, you want to get them all on film. So I took the GoPro with me, and long story short, I crawled up to 22 yards from him, and he stood up. And he seen me, and I was just like curled up in a ball, like on my hands and knees, and just looking through my hat bill at him. And he, when he saw me, he laid his ears back, bristled up, and started slobbering like a zombie, and pinned his ears back and walked straight to me. No way! Like I guess he thought I guess he thought I was another buck, and um, he walked to 14 yards and stayed looking dead at me the whole time. No way I could ever do anything. And instead of, you know, turn broadside or whatever, he turned about face and turned and started walking dead away from me with his head down. And I'm like, well, you're dead. So I drew my bow, and instead of, a, you know, a deer normally they'll turn back broadside and kind of look at you. He didn't do that. He just, like, threw his head over his shoulder. And all I had was a, you know, shoot him in the butt or a super, super hard quarter and away shot. I didn't want to risk it. And he ended up, the doe got up and took off running and he chased her off. 
And that had last time I seen him because the neighbors ended up killing him next week. Oh, did they really? Jeez. You got yep. some lucky neighbors. Yeah. The one thing about them is they can kill some deer. It's an outfitter. Ah, okay. Um, so they're hunting pretty hard. And yeah. So, so, yeah, it's not like like people, like if they watch one of our videos, they're like, oh, you're hunting a big farm, blah, blah, blah. No, really not. Like we, we still have lots of neighbors, and the neighbors are really good at killing deer. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like you and a couple of your neighbors shot some nice bucks this year. So, yeah, you know, you guys are doing the right thing around there, which is which is awesome, man. It, it really no yeah. put a lot of time yeah, in. So, I'm sorry for rambling. I can tell deer stories all night, but no, no, that's what we want to hear. Yeah, yeah, and that's not even the end of the camera costing me a story. You're costing me a deer. <laughs> <laughs> Because I've got the next the next show that we'll be doing, I, I killed another deer uh, late season. He was actually one of my target deer um, that I had to let walk one afternoon because it was after camera light. But that's another story for another day. Hey, well, hey, we, we have lots of podcast episodes to uh, record, and uh, you've been an awesome guest. I, I want to be respectful of your time. I have, like, two questions for you if you have, like, two more minutes. Hey, I got all night. All right. Baby's already baby, asleep, and I'm just sitting here by myself. Perfect. Same here. Same here. Yeah. I uh, Normally, we wrap this up with uh, a question about a tree, which we'll get to. I'm trying to include something else now um, as well for the listeners. Real brief, what would you say your number one piece of habitat-related or hunting-related advice is for, you know, us, our listeners, you, the normal people with, you know, 10, 40, 100, 200 acres, like what what was your, or what would your number one piece of advice be uh, if you had to list one? Number one, number one piece of advice, and it's probably kind of a generic piece of advice. That's fine. I've already took, and I've already given it to you. Yep, that's fine. Uh, number one would be give them something that they don't already have. That they require. So, like our farm uh, that I talk about when I talk to everybody, the number one piece that was missing on that farm was good quality bedding, thermal, and pawning cover. And the number one answer for that was switchgrass. Okay. And how much switchgrass did you put in on that farm, would you say? Um, I think we're probably, we're probably in the 20-acre range. Awesome. I went pretty full bore with it. 13 of that is in a CRP program, and it has switchgrass in it to help it along, but it's got a really good mix of forbs and Indian and, and big blue stem as okay. well. Um, but it, but it, it accomplishes the same thing. Um, it was giving those deer something that they didn't have to survive and feel comfortable, and that's our number one goal is to make the deer feel comfortable and give them a home. So whether you're in Pennsylvania or Michigan or Alabama or wherever you're at, you've got to take an intimate look at your specific piece and try to decide what they don't have that they need. Maybe it's reduce your hunting pressure. Maybe it's something as simple as plant a food plot, which... 99% of the people out there want to do anyway. 
Right. Um, maybe, maybe it's switchgrass. Maybe it's a fruit tree. Uh, maybe it's, you know, in your timber. Um, you just, you gotta look at it as a canvas and paint the picture that we want to just give them a home and give them a place to feel really comfortable in. Awesome piece of advice. I've, uh, I think I've thought about that in the past. I know I always try to be better than my neighbors, um, not to, you know, be anything against my neighbors. They're great, but I want to be better than them. I want to have everything they have and more. Um, yeah, and, be and a lot of times it's not even about yeah. being better than the neighbors. Like right. It's just, it's well, just, in terms of habitat, gotta, in terms of food, in terms of, yeah. you know, the property. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they, just, a lot of times it doesn't happen overnight. And a lot of times, you know, especially if you step onto a new piece of property, it may take you two or three years to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Good point. That's all. That's the that's the part that's the funnest, and that's why I can't wait to buy a farm here in the next year. So <laughs> get to work on it. Get to work on it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I can't wait for those videos. I know uh, one of our longtime listeners and podcast uh, guests, uh, way back in the beginning, Eric Zelensky, He always tries to do exactly what the opposite of the neighbors are doing. Uh, very different. So that's it's funny you mentioned the yeah. same exact thing here tonight. So. And, okay, my, my second question to wrap this up, which I ask, I try to ask everybody, sometimes I forget, um, your favorite tree of all time. We all plant trees, we're all out there in the spring, maybe even the winter, planting dormant trees. Um, could be hunting, could be habitat related. What tree do you love? Money tree. The money I got this tree, tree. <laughs> I, just, I just, I learned how to grow it, and it grows dollar bills on it. <laughs> I tell you, we uh, always get a different answer uh, every yeah. time. I freaking love this question every time. <laughs> um, I don't really have a favorite tree. Okay. Um, I mean, we've planted money tree is a good one though. Yeah, money tree. It's yeah, a hundred dollar bills. Yeah, I need like ten of them. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I really don't have a favorite tree. I mean, when we plant a fruit orchard, we we kind of try to mix it up. Um. You know, apples, pears, persimmons, okay. crab apples, the whole nine yards. Um, as far as favorite tree, uh, like favorite tree of all time, white oak. I mean, probably some of my best and most memorable hunts are out of that white oak at my grandpa's that uh, I talked about being able to step right out of the ditch and be able to hunt out of it. And it produces acorns every year, and or, you know, not every year, but. I've had some really, really good hunts out of that old tree. I'll, I'll love it forever. Try to keep it alive. Good answer. So normally we get like a tree species. Uh, you're talking about a singular tree, one actual tree. I love it. Yeah. 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 It's probably it's my favorite tree of all time. I've got the tree. Oh, uh, I just I just have a sentimental attachment to that property anyway. Yeah, man. Um, I can't even imagine. And that and that. That tree stand, we actually hung that tree, that tree stand, like the year after my grandpa died. Oh, wow. And um, had like a, I don't know, it's hard to explain, but I had a really, like, meaningful hunt that year, and I didn't even kill a deer, uh, but I passed up a deer that, I don't know, it was kind of like the gateway into everything that we've done ever since. So it just means a lot to us. Yeah, I don't think that's very hard to explain, man. I think I get that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
So, yeah. Good time, fellas. Yeah, Casey. Thanks, dude, thanks so much for coming on, man. That was a great conversation. I had a blast. Um, love yeah, you back too. on sometime in the future. I, uh, I want to be respectful of your time, though. I know it's getting late, and, uh, you know, just thanks. Well, hopefully you got something that's usable. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I started this back in 2007. I bought my first farm. And uh, there wasn't a whole lot of people out there doing what you guys were doing, and you were doing it way back then. And just uh, appreciate you guys starting it when you did and keeping it going. It's it's really made a big difference on the way Jared and I approach habitat management. Well, I appreciate you guys watching. Awesome, man. Well, all right, everybody. Episode 70 in the book. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks so much for leaving us great reviews. And uh, for supporting us at HabitatPodcast.com. Uh, we're doing some new videos on our YouTube, so be sure to look up Habitat Podcast on there. And uh, I'd like to thank our sponsors. We have uh, Dale at 52 Outdoors. Check him out. That's F-I-V-E, the number two, Outdoors.com. He is running a deal with no sales tax on any of the hunting blinds you purchased when you mentioned the Habitat Podcast. That's free money, guys. Uh, next, we have... Lincoln Rowan at the Packer Max Cult of Packers. I've been using one of these for two years now, and they are great packers. I urge you guys to check them out at PackerMax.com. You won't be disappointed if you do buy one, and you do get $50 off any packer if you mention the Habitat podcast. Again, free money. I obviously like to say that. Uh, KillerFoodPlots.com. Spring food plot season is around the corner. You'll check out all Nick's new stuff at KillerFoodPlots.com. I'll be planting his seed again this year along with his soil defender and aqua defense system that he came out with here in 2020. So be sure to check those out. Next, we have the Habitat Hook, guys. Check out nationscreations.net for the hinge-cutting tool called the Habitat Hook. One of my favorite tools I use in the woods in the wintertime. It is amazing. It's just as important as having my chainsaw, in my opinion. Uh, next, let's check out Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. If you guys are sitting around this winter, you know, feeling the itch to get back in the tree stand, check out the videos at michiganwhitetailpursuit.com. Uh, you might see yours truly up there. You might see a bunch of other cool dudes who are shooting nice deer on pressured properties, uh, bow and gun. Also some youth and some women on there kicking some butt too. So it's, it's real hunting, guys, and I urge you to check them out at Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. The HuntWise app. If you look on your uh, app store and you look up HuntWise, Check out the reviews and the amount of downloads that app has. Those guys are, are killing it. It's a great app. I love using it. I used it way more than I thought I would, actually. Um, and, and it really is helpful. I use it all the time now. I walked a new piece of ground the other day and had that out the whole time. And it's mid-January. So, so, guys, be sure to check out HuntWise and also another good episode coming. Come back and listen to us. We'll be here for you. Habitat Podcast. Uh, look forward to you guys coming back. We love you, and uh, tune in as we are becoming better habitat managers with you guys. Take care.
Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lift. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. 